Good morning and welcome to Recipe for Success. My name is Nancy Giacalone. My guest today is Allison DePauli with Altique Consulting. Um, for those of you that have been following me for a while now, you know that Recipe for Success is all about tying my love of two things, cooking and business and personal success. Because one of the things that I've discovered over time is that there's always one ingredient or technique that is critical to the outcome of your recipe or in business, your success. So I like to talk to people about different things that have been important in their career. And so today, as I mentioned, we have Allison DePauli with Altique Consulting, and she does some different things in the employee benefit space. We're gonna get a little bit geeky, but um, before we do that, I want to welcome Allison and allow her to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what Altique is. So uh, I am so excited to do this with you. So we have had some very geeky conversations. So this ought to be interesting today. Um, so thank you. Um, my name is Allison DePauli. I own Altique Consulting. Um, this is an iteration of a business that I've owned for a long time. I come from the benefits world. We, I worked in a family boutique benefits firm for many years. When I moved to Texas, moved into the voluntary side of the business and then looked around and thought, I have these really great clients. And I could maybe fix that problem and I could maybe fix that problem and I could maybe fix that problem. Why isn't that problem being fixed? And thought, well, well, then just shut up and go fix the problem. And I think that that's how a lot of businesses are born. And I also decided I wasn't doing anything the way anybody else did, which is fabulous and horrifying at the same time. <laughs> that's one of the reasons we connect so well. <laughs> <laughs> So it has been quite an interesting few years. Um, I have found myself doing a few things that I'm I'm quite surprised about, and um, it's all good. So um, one of your passions has been really finding a better way for employers and their members to access and provide health care. So why do you think that you focused in on that path as opposed to the more mainstream path of just making sure they were getting the best price? So I'm a problem solver by nature. You know, give me a problem and I'm going to figure out how to unwind it. And I see a whole host of problems. And I think that many people don't realize that the healthcare system is actually working quite well for a few people. It's just not working well for the users or the payers which hardly seems fair to me. And I come from a family of entrepreneurs, my grandfather, my father, my uncles, my cousins, all we all own some sort of business. It could be a, a small service business, a boutique benefits firm, car dealers, boat dealerships, heavy equipment, whatever it is. Um, so my whole life, I've seen people take care of employees and and heard what the concerns are about that because I feel like employees don't think employers are on their side and I'm not sure that that's true. And I heard employees and I and I see how employees were like reacted to me even as a young child when running through my father's factory. And I think that there's there is a holistic ecosystem and and with many employers and I know you know this that there is a more personal dynamic there and most employers do in fact want to offer something valuable for the very competitive, we need a decent benefits package to be competitive and keep the talent we need to run our business, 
over to look these are human beings and you know we we want to make sure that they have what they need and anything in between and i think that's part of what makes what we do so interesting so it's i didn't know this about you actually that you came from a family of entrepreneurs because my dad owned his own business as well and i did the same thing as far as you know uh, running around and you know working at it at a young age and i think that does trigger something in you internally as you as you mature um but one of the things that you brought up, I think is super interesting, and I don't think we talk about it enough, is that a lot of employees think employers don't have their best interests at heart. Correct. And I would say, in my opinion, that at least 90% of employers that I work with care very much about their employees' interests, best interests, but they don't know how to address it properly. Yes, because they've got, they have both sides and they think they're doing the right thing for their employees because they don't want to pass maybe more of a premium on to the employee, but they Correct. forget about what's happening on the back end. Yes, I, I encounter that a lot. Um, I, I got the best compliment the other day. Um, I was on a, a conference call and one of my clients was on the call and said, well, you know that we work with Allison and she has helped us for some time now. And we have finally been able to pass on a merit increase to our employees without passing on a healthcare increase. And now this is the second year in a row that we've done that. And not only have they been able to pass on a merit increase, we've decreased their contribution by 25%. Yeah. And he said, you know, he said, that's meaningful. That means that you can give something to somebody and not take it away with the other hand. And um, we haven't required their employees to do anything too different yet, but we are evolving their health plan over time. And I think that's the other thing is people think, oh my God, I have to do all these things and blah, blah. You don't, you can take them one at a time in a way that works for your culture because every culture is a little bit different. Exactly. I think that um, both employers and employees think that if they make any type of change in the way that they're used to doing things, that everything's going to change. Correct. And maybe we just start with one thing. Yes. And see how that works. And then we add one more thing. And yep. then pretty soon that's comfortable and it doesn't feel like it was any big shift in the way that we access healthcare. Yes. And I think that frank conversation with employees on multiple occasions is incredibly effective. You know, people are not stupid. They understand, they see what's happening. And if you have a conversation that says, look, we're gonna change this. It's gonna be a change. There are gonna be a few bumps. It's okay, we'll work them out. You just need to tell us what's happening. And then you actually have conversations with people. They get it. Yes. Okay, so we, we've danced around it without digging in, but we're going to get the shovel out right now and we're going to start <laughs> digging in. Okay. So I know that the bulk of your business is built around self-funding strategies yes. or at least alternative funding strategies. Let's put it that way. Um, it allows you to build the plans that meet the specific needs of those groups and hopefully provide a better experience to the employees. Um, and when I say hopefully, not necessarily in your case, but self-funding doesn't mean better benefits or lower costs in and of itself. No, That's it just not. a term that people throw around and like, oh, hey, I do self-funding. Well, great. Let's talk about really what, <laughs> what it takes because it's nothing new, 
But there's a lot of new things we can do over the last few years that weren't yes. available to us in the past. Um, but the biggest issue is making sure communication, communication, over communicate, and then communicate some Again. more to both the employer and the employees. So let's, like I say, we got the shovel out. We're talking dirt. Let's talk about a little, um, some of the biggest snafus you see when you walk into a plan that is already self-funded, but not done very well. Communication. Um, so if, if you're self-funded and you're you're with a big carrier and, and you're using the big carrier network and the big carrier is processing your claims, you may be self-funded, but really all you're doing is managing your cash flow, right? And that'll save you a few percent, three, four, five percent, and okay. And that often is a terrific first step. Right. So you're managing your cash flow. You can kind of see what's going on, depending on who the carrier is. You still don't have all the, don't have the transparency that you need in order to be effective or that your vendor partners need in order to be effective. And you really don't have a good opportunity to control the cost of care, which is ultimately going to control your health care budget. So I see a lot of that. Oh, we're already self-funded. We're good. Yeah, no, you're not really. But OK. Um, and then when you migrate them into an into a new environment, and I just took over a case not quite a year ago, where the uh, prior broker moved them into an, a reference based pricing plan, did the meeting, and went, "There you go." Well, we all know what a disaster that is. <laughs> yes, and um, now fortunately they're not a huge group, and there we had some communication opportunities once i took it over and there were not a lot of problems but we are still almost a year later digging through a couple of problems where somebody didn't understand what to do or how to do it and now we have to fix that for them now fortunately the employer is like yes we're going to fix it yeah. not saying yeah whatever and and we can do that but it does take participation on all parts. And yeah. I, you know, I have a lot of conversations that go, look, this is this is kind of the rack rate for it. I think that's a good term for it. I think that's a good term. This is what it should cost. This is what we negotiated for. You all right with that? Yeah, we're good with that. Okay, fine. How many people do you know that are willing to have that conversation? Yeah. Not, not too many. We have a couple of comments. Steve Watson says, great point that self-funding are just words. You have to really dig into it, what it does and how it works. I mean, yeah. so true. We know that so well. Absolutely. And then, um, then Gypsy, because my mom is my biggest fan. She tunes in every week. <laughs> so I always Hi. have to give Judy a little shout out. Um, so the other thing that I think um, that comes up, at least I see it as well with, with self-funding is again, that it just, everything gets lumped into that, into yeah. that bucket. And there's so many different nuances and there's so many different ways that you can do it. For an example, you just mentioned um, a carrier self-funded plan. Mm -hmm. I don't even really like to call those self-funded, but um, I agree, but, but we'll start there because that's the, that's the least Disruption. barrier. It's the lowest barrier to get into self-funding or level funding, if you will. They're, they can at least see their experience. They can mm -hmm. start to see how the plan is running. And hopefully, if they have a good advisor like you um, or me, or you. Um, they, <laughs> they would also start to see how 
the fixed costs are out of line in an, a carrier-provided self-funded plan? So I ask this question a lot. Um, I I work as a, a consultant for a large employer with about uh, 1,300 employees on their plan, and they manage their own plan. So I just I pro- I really do just provide advice. And they were ASO with a carrier for many years, and they were getting and I have more than one client like than this, but they were getting a rebate credit for their. Um, they were not getting their pharmacy rebates. They were getting a rebate credit. They were getting enough rebate to reduce reduce their fee from uh, to about twenty six dollars per employee per month, which is. And I'm thinking <laughs> it shouldn't cost that much. Yeah. Uh, now the reality is that a well constructed health insurance plan, or excuse me self-funded plan with solid vendors will cost about $40 per employee per month. But that is the TPA, that is the repricing vendor, that is any other services that you, if you've got 24 hour advocacy, you've got a few other services in there, you might have a network fee in there, that's gonna cost you 40, $45. I have another client that is getting enough rebate credit to to cover 100% of their administrative fee. Now, in either of those instances, do you think that the client is getting 100% or as close to possible as 100% of their rebate credit? Absolutely not. Exactly. And then you ask that question, they're like, oh, yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, and, and, it be, and part of that is because um, there's so many layers in our in in our industry. There's so many players and people that have their hand in the pot. Yep. It, it can require almost a forensic eye to get to where all the money really is. And Mm -hmm. even then we still might be missing some of it. You know, and, and the thing that I savvy employers that are, that may be ASO with a, with a large carrier, they're looking and the financial brains are going, something isn't right. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something isn't right. So they can identify that there's a problem, but they don't know how to fix it. Those are my favorites. Th- those are my favorite people, hands down. Yeah, absolutely. So here's, I have a good story for you. I just heard it yesterday, as a matter of fact. So I was talking to another, well, I'll use the word advisor loosely. I know they have one self-funded client. And he was telling me that that client decided to get rid of their stop loss. They have 85 employees because he felt he was wasting his money. My response to him is, I would, I would, I would resign. Have, I'd, I'd fire. The, I'd resign from that client. Yeah. I would not be associated with that client because, again, I, I warned you guys, we're going to get geeky here. The only point of insurance is to protect against a large, unforeseen, catastrophic claim. That's Correct. what insurance really is. All the other stuff below it is is ways to finance healthcare, mm-hmm. but above it is insurance. And when you take that out, that one you're claim could out. absolutely sink that employer. Yeah, they're they're That's in no waiting to happen. They're in no position to have be hit with a multi million dollar claim. Now, when you get to ten thousand employees, well, if you're ten thousand, that's a whole different story. That's a different animal because you have the cash flow. Correct. But a group with eighty five employees not. does not. And it's just, it was, that was so shocking to me to hear that. I I mean, I still feel sick to my stomach even saying it. 
that is a truly scary place to be. And that is, you know, I'm going to digress for just a second, but we have a policy that we do not sell mech plants. Right. And we do that because I don't care how many times you explain it, how well you explain it, people don't understand what it is. And I have yet to be in enrollment. And I saw this when in when I was in the voluntary space. I saw it when I was um, doing enrollments for when I was carrier agnostic and, and constructing enrollments and conducting enrollments. I have yet to see a MEC plan that does not result in screaming at an open enrollment meeting. And, I, you know, this may be completely selfish, but that's too much for me. Well, I don't. I, again, I don't. I feel the same way about it. Uh, Steve said he'd throw he'd throw the advisor out of the office if they even agreed to it. Uh, um, yes. Okay. So, since we're on the subject of stop loss, explain to anybody that's listening what stop loss really is. So stop loss is the insurance part of a self-funded plan. So when, when you think about a self-funded health plan, and I think that there are a couple of ways to, to speak about that, that make people more comfortable and lower the temperature. So pay as you go, which is, I uh, am hijacking from Steve Watson. Yes. Um, pay as you go, I think is a, a, a good description because you are paying as you go for healthcare that your employees are consuming and you're only paying for the healthcare that they're consuming. I think employer controlled is another way to look at that. And that's from the health Rosetta folks, but carrier controlled, employer controlled, right? So when you are in control of your environment, you set the parameters. You can decide the quality metrics. You can decide the repayment schedule. You can decide a whole host of things what all services employees have access to. You know, 24-hour advocacy is a huge boon to both employees and employers. It is so much. And, you know, so you can decide all of those things. And I, but I think the misnomer is self-insurance employees, this 85 Life group aside, think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be responsible. And that is not the case. It's a different kind of work but it's not the case that you are responsible for everything. So the stop loss, I always like to, I always like to explain it to my groups that that's your umbrella of protection. So, you know, that's what, that's what protects you from getting soaked. You might get your feet wet, but you're not going to get soaked. And that's you're going to be responsible for the first so much. And then the insurance will take care of everything else. Okay. So I know. Okay. So stop loss insurance Mm -hmm. We kind of have a basic idea, understanding of what that is. Now it gets really tricky because stop loss contracts are so different. Are so different. Every carrier writes them differently. They have all sorts of little Easter eggs in them that aren't necessarily the good kind. And so you have to read them very carefully to understand really what that, what the insurance company's responsibility is and what, your responsibility really is. And then Absolutely. on top of that, we have contract I'll stop plus terms. So yeah. we throw this stuff around in our industry all the time. And I try to be, I try not to get too stuck in insurance lingo, but we have things called 12, 12, 12, 15, 15, 18. Yep. Let's explain what that means. So I think the the main difference is, is a contract year is a contract year, right? So let's say that you you renew on January 1 and your contract runs from January 1 to December 31st. 
So any claims that are incurred within that time, you should have something called, and you should have one or the other. Typically you don't have both. If, if you have a weird problem, you may have both one year, but you don't need it after that. Something called run in or something called run out. So run in picks up the claims that were incurred before for the first several months of the plan, right? So it may, you may have a 1512 contract, which means that technically your contract starts on January 1st, but it will pick up anything from the three months prior. So 15, 12, or you might have the other end where your contract is a 12, 15, or more typically a 12, 18, where your contract starts on January 1, and then it, it ends on December 31st, but will continue for the next six months. And it'll pick up anything that, that needs to get built, that was late being built. And that's just protection for the employer. And there's a cost differential and you need to look at what the cost is and what, what the risk actually is. One thing I see a lot of advisors doing, especially if they're not really familiar with the self-funded area, is they have a group and their group says, I want to do self-funding. And so they get some quotes and they see that 12-12 contract and they say, well, that's the most affordable. That makes sense. Yep. I'm going to show the group this because this is going to be amazing. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a 12-12 contract. What can be a problem is what you do in the next year. Yep. Um, and so to, to clarify, a 12-12 contract means that your claims need to be incurred. In other words, they had to happen and they have the claim has to be processed and paid in the same plan year. So in Allison's example, from January 1 through December 31st. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens if you have a claim on December 31st? It's unlikely it's going to be paid on the same day. Correct. It's going to go into the next year. So again, we have this entry level, cheaper contract. What's super important is what happens the next year. So you talked about the run-in. Yep. So then you need run-in the next year. Yep. So run-in. So then in that case, you would more than likely have a 15-12 or yep. a 18, 12, whichever way you go, but you need to pick up that liability because if you don't, the employer is not going to understand when you say, oh, those claims weren't, they, they, they weren't covered. Pay those. They weren't covered. What? You just have to pay those out of your, out of your cash. They don't yeah. apply to anything. What? So, yeah. So Steve, Steve had a couple comments. I think we're getting him a little fired up. He says, <laughs> yeah, knowing the difference, but then the other one, and this showing a 12-12 compared to a fully insured is not oh, apples right. to apples. And that is where the problem comes in. Exactly. And and I think when you, when you have somebody that doesn't read contracts, I mean, I can't tell you how many employers, I talked to an employer that had a $359,000 termination penalty in their contract and didn't know that. It was never it was never identified or explained. Now I think people need to read contracts, but as the advisor, it is your job to point that out. Yeah, and that's not terribly unusual. No, not not at all. So Steve said, my preference is to compare a fully insured to a twelve fifteen or a twelve eighteen. What are your thoughts? Yes, and I uh, I have a client where I picked up a, an eighteen twelve. They came off a fully insured plan. Now they went from United Healthcare to UMR. So basically they took United off the hook and put the employer on the hook for the claims. The employer didn't know that. Sure. I'm not sure the advisor knew that. Probably not. 
That would be my guess because that's an unusual a move. <laughs> yep. And so now we've, we've adjusted that, but um, it was, it was a lot, and it's a lot of conversation because you have to do all the education to help employers understand what that is. Yeah. Um, okay. So what you, you, we've, we've talked about a couple examples of, you know, you coming in um, on account where somebody was already self-funded and, you know, you've had the opportunity to win their business. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's because, you look at them as being on a journey as opposed to just this is where they're at and it needs to be changed. Yes. I, you know, I, I am pretty good with change. I like it. I change all kinds of things all the time. I have a pretty high tolerance for change and many people do not. And I think the big mistake that advisors like me make is that, oh, well, we'll just change it. No, you're not going to just change it. You need to take people where they are and make a change and make another change. And two things happen. Employers see results. Employees are not completely wigged out because a lot of people think insurance, pay. Insurance, pay. And they don't realize that ultimately they they're they're financing their healthcare in a very expensive manner. So that takes a little bit of education. But as as you're going through these changes, they're understanding and they're more willing to do things to contain their own costs. Okay, so I'm going to go. I'm going rogue. <laughs> I warned you this might happen. <laughs> so, um, what do you think is going to happen when we start seeing our um, one one renewals come in? especially from fully insured carriers? And how do you think employers are going to react to what I think is not going to be a very pleasant renewal season? I think they're not going to really understand why. Um, I think they don't understand why they're getting rate increases at all right now, because really so much elective care was delayed. Um, and I, I've heard for the first time the other day, oh, the renewal is, we don't want you to get a really bad renewal in, in 2022. So we're giving you a little bit of an increase now. Really? Yep. I, I don't think people are going to respond well to that. And I think that there will be more appetite for change. And I think that when Warren Buffett gets up and says, well, we tried to fight the tapeworm and the tapeworm won. <laughs> yeah. That there are some people that won't take kindly to that. Yeah. And well, they'll be more determined to change something. Um. I, I agree because I think that um, so many employers were afraid of change last year. I mean, our world was upside down. Everything felt like it had yep. changed. And the last thing they wanted to do to themselves, to their employees, anything was to provide any disruption. I wouldn't say things are back to normal, but things are normalizing and yes. in the process of normalizing. And I think that a, um, they didn't make changes last year. They probably took either increases that they wouldn't normally take, but they took them. Mm -hmm. PP funds have run out. Yep. They did not adjust during the time that they could make good changes. And so now they have expenses that have caught up to them. Yep. And I think that they're going to be looking for any way they can to, yes. to save money. And so I think their appetite for something different and a different conversation is going to be a little bit greater this year. That's my take. So I noticed last year a bigger appetite for conversation, but less willingness for further disruption. Yes. And I think that that cycle will start to catch up with itself, that people will be willing to make disruptions to 
you know, and, and in some cases, containing your healthcare budget means not laying people off. And I think that while health insurance change is always unpalatable to everybody, that it is more palatable than laying people off. Right. It is more palatable than not passing off raises. It is, you know, more palatable than not meeting your earnings expectations. You know, it's it's a pick your poison. And then when people get better, better access to high quality care, lower out of pocket costs. Oh, well, this is kind of cool. So how do you think that we continue to beat the drum and spread the message of it takes everybody to make a change? It's not just the employer willing to restructure their benefit plan. It's employees, it's members, it's individuals stepping up and saying, I have a part in this. Yes, I, I think um, we have, we as an industry have created, oh, insurance will take care of that. Insurance will take care of that. I mean, how many people do you know that run out and get every test that they might possibly conceivably need because they have met their deductible for another reason? Mm -hmm. and, and while, yes, I understand the immediate economics of that, when you sit and have a conversation, people understand, oh, we are ultimately paying for that. And I think you're starting to hear much more conversation about financing of healthcare, not insurance. And we do have to do a better job of making sure that people understand that healthcare alone is actually not that expensive and typically not that unreasonably priced. But when you add five layers in between is where you start to get the problem. And when you can condense those layers and make sure that everybody understands what the cost is, well, people get what they need and they should get what they need. This is Absolutely. no way limiting yeah. care, but they no. should get what they need and they should have good quality care. I mean, this is people we're talking about, right? We're not talking about, you know, the toaster. You know, we're talking about a human and most people want humans to have quality care. So help people determine what what quality care is. You and I both know that high quality care is generally on the less expensive side. Do the right thing with the humans and do the right thing with your budget. But you have to talk about it and we have to keep talking about it. Otherwise, it's not going to change. So one issue I run into a lot is because I work with a lot of employers with less than 100 employees. So they may or may not be even have the opportunity to be reasonably self-funded. Right. The issue I take with our industry as a whole is vendors want to build these um, solutions that are great for a group of 2,500 or more or are great for a group of 250 or more. And while I appreciate where they're coming from, there's got to be some way that they start pushing some of these solutions down market, even if it's just an information tool. Um, because I was I was helping my son the other day try to figure out the cost of a procedure he needs to have done. We couldn't find it yeah. anywhere. I mean, and we dug through everything and could not determine what the cost of this procedure was going to be. And that's not right because if you go to buy a car, you know what it costs. You know what it costs. And you're you're more than likely, if you can save a thousand dollars, you're more than more than likely to drive an extra 10 miles to the dealership that you can save yeah. that thousand dollars. But if we don't have the information, how do we make good decisions? Correct. And I think, you know, there was more health insurance change in the last, you know, in the last quarter of 2020 than there was in the last 10 years. And I am amazed. 
still completely amazed that more people are not talking about it. But pricing transparency will be the rule. And it's not going to be easy and it's going to be ugly for a few years. But in the not too distant future, an employee will be able to get a personalized estimate about what it, what an episode of care will cost them, what that colonoscopy will cost them, what that knee replacement will cost them at this provider, that provider, this facility, that facility. Are they going to be able to do that on their own? Probably not, at least for some time. But there are already tools that you can use to help people with that. And I think we're going to see wider adoption of that. We're also having a lot of the opacity in healthcare ripped open. And, you know, I like that. I don't particularly care for how this was structured because the responsibility and, and the liability is squarely on the shoulder of the employer and they have no control over any right, of it. Right. But at least, you'll know what people get paid. You'll know what the relationships are, right? And I think that is a huge part of the problem is there's all of these side deals and backroom deals that keep layering in the cost and layering the cost and layering the cost. And when they have to be identified, well, why is that? And you'll start to see employers say, yeah, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, okay. Well, I guess this is a really... a. Uh, um, I have two questions. I'd say I got way off script. So now I have to look at, look at my notes. Okay. So you never stay on script. I know. I, and I knew that was, I knew that was going to happen. So this is no surprise. Okay. Well, you and I have had some really good opportunities to brainstorm and support each other over the last year, which has been super beneficial for me. I have to tell you, and um, me as well. but so given that, how important do you think it is to have peer accountability and support groups within this industry or really for that matter, any industry? I think it's important in any industry. So I have some industry-specific peer support groups and I have, um, I'm part of a, a business owner group. And I think that um, each brings a unique value and I learn a lot. And as I evolved and changed my business, I could not have done that without the industry peer groups. There were some people who were incredibly generous with their time and knowledge and I mean, I, there is an advisor in South Texas who literally called me every week. What are you doing? What's this? What's that? Where is this? Do you need this? Did you do this? Call this guy. Do this. He didn't have to do that. You know, that generosity of that is astounding to me. And I don't think that I'm unique in that. And I've done that for people or something similar for people. And I know you have as well. So I think that that is incredibly important. And I think as small business owners, there are decisions that we make every day that sometimes it'd be really nice to have somebody to talk to about them. And that is a way to do that. And I think also women operate businesses differently than men do. And we need to talk to other women that own businesses. It doesn't mean it's better or it's worse, but it's different. It is different. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. Well, I have, um, I have benefited tremendously from any peer group I've ever been in, whether it is, uh, inside this industry or outside yeah. this industry, I would say I've always taken away something of value. And I feel so strongly about that. I don't know that I will ever not be in some sort of peer or accountability group I until, until I'm ready to, you know, retire, lock it in. Yep. So, um, okay. So where do you see yourself in 10 years? I hope that I have fixed this problem for a significant number of people. That That is the goal is to fix this problem is going to, 
this problem is going to get fixed one employer at a time. And it, it's not, there is no top-down solution that is going to work. There is no, you know, employers must act in their own interest. And we have done such a good job of brainwashing them that they cannot, that I hope to unbrainwash many that yes, they can. That is the goal is to unbrainwash as many people as possible. Unbrainwashed. That's your new hashtag. That's my new hashtag. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So we've on to the five burning questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What's your favorite food and can you cook it? So my all-time favorite food might be pizza and generally no, but my favorite favorite thing, one of my favorite things is fettuccine in a lemon Parmesan sauce, mm. which is so incredibly easy to make and so incredibly tasty and fast. And yes, I can make that. That sounds delicious. And I love a good pizza too. So can't, can't argue with either of those. Those are, <laughs> those are awesome. Okay. So what's the one character trait you admire most in others and why? And then when you're done with that, I need to know what's the one character trait you are most proud of in yourself and why? So I value directness, kind directness. And um, I think I'm good at that. And I think that if somebody's asking you for advice, you don't need to be mean, you don't need to be snarly or anything like that, but give people good advice and be nice. You know, my father, I some years ago, I was the president of the local um, women business owners organization in San Antonio. And we had a, a fascinating woman named Nina Vaca come speak to us. And she is, she was a very, 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 very successful business. And she owned, she is the daughter of migrant farmers. And she said, she got up on stage and my father came for this and um, to see what was going on. What are you doing? And um, she got up on stage and said, the most important thing I think I ever learned from my father was that it's very nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And he leaned over and tapped me on the shoulder and said, I taught you that. And he did. And I think it's a very important lesson for people to learn is you can always be nice. And I'm not a perfect, I've snarled plenty, but be nice and be direct and honest. I love that. I love that. Okay. If you could magically get everyone to change one thing, just one about their benefit program to get better results, what would it be? Get your data. And don't accept, you and I both know that there is no reason, I don't care if you have two lives on your plan or 2,000 lives on your plan, there is not a reason today to accept that you cannot get data. You absolutely can. Yes, you can. Lots of tools to do it now. Absolutely. Okay, so what's your secret talent or something people would be surprised to learn about you? So I don't think I have a secret talent, but I have learned to love exercise. I've seen some pictures of you dancing. Oh, very bad. I feel like <laughs> dancing might be involved. So. There is no talent in the dancing. Okay, well, just there just, is enjoyment of it, but there is no talent in the dancing. So I think that um, I this is not. I'm not supposed to be responding, of course. But if, here I go again. <laughs> um, 
I think the one thing that you and I have a very much in common that most people would be surprised to know about is we both have an absolutely cutting sense of humor and we really like to laugh. And most yes, people are always kind of surprised by that. They're like, I didn't know you were funny. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, I think I'm the funniest person I know. I think I might be the most sarcastic person I know. Yeah. And I have worked very hard to keep a lid on that because sometimes it doesn't go well. Yeah, I know I do too. But but I I spend a lot of time making myself laugh. No one yeah. else might think it's funny, but I think it's hilarious. I think one of my biggest gifts is the ability to laugh at myself. And I yes. think you have that gift too. Yeah. So sometimes I just crack myself up because I've done something incredibly stupid. It usually involves falling over something. Yeah, yeah. No to do that too. Yeah. So. Okay. So who is the one person that you've connected with on LinkedIn um, that you would most like to meet in real life or maybe somebody you, the, whose podcast you really admire that you would most like to sit down and have a cup of coffee and just chat with? Uh, so one of them would be your, one of your listeners today, and that would be Steve. Steve. That would be Steve. Um, and I think it would be very interesting to have a conversation with Ed Milet. Very good choice. And why would you choose him? Because I think he's so tough and so positive and not, um, I mean, he's a successful guy. He's a direct guy. He lives his whole life. He doesn't just live his business life, but he lives his whole life. And he seems to be kinder than a number of people in his space. He seems like a good guy. Yeah, I would agree with that. I like that. Okay, well, that pretty much wraps it up for today. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? So LinkedIn is a fabulous way to reach out. I think that's the best way without any um, emails and yada, yada. You know, there are just not that many Allison DePaulis in the world. There are not that many Altique Consultings in the world. My goal one day is to have a business that people can actually spell without me correcting them. Um, but so acdepauli at altique.com is email. I'm pretty open on LinkedIn. That would be a great way to connect with me. And I'm happy to talk with anybody, advisor or employer or whatever. I think the more that we talk to people about how this industry can change, the better off we all are. I agree 100%. Thank you so much for your time today. This was a blast as I knew it would be. Thank so, um, and if anybody didn't get all of that, is unsure of how to connect with Allison, please reach out to me and I will put you in touch with her. She is, she is one of a kind. So <laughs> thanks everybody and have a great day. Bye.